We are uh, once again in the book of Romans. Um, we're actually in Romans chapter 8, and so if you have a Bible, please open up your Bible to Romans chapter 8. We'll be looking at the first four verses. And if you don't have a Bible, you should be able to find a black one that looks like this. Underneath a chair near you will be on page 944 in the black Bibles. And the, the reality is, we only started this sermon series just to get to Romans 8. Okay, we, we, I, I felt, I mean, I could have just, we could have just done a series on Romans 8. Uh, that's been done before, um, but I felt that, I, I, honestly, I felt convicted that I can't just jump to what's arguably the greatest chapter in the Bible without doing some of the other chapters leading up to it. And uh, I, I think it's been a great, a great thing. I think this is what God has wanted us to do. But, I, um, but Romans 8 is arguably the greatest chapter in the Bible. Uh, um, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, a 20th century pastor, famous preacher, once said that uh, for a preacher, the, the greatest book of the Bible should be the one that he is expounding at the moment. Um, and you know what? There, there's a lot of truth to that. I've certainly found that to be true every time I think I've found my favorite book or my favorite chapter, uh, my favorite sermon series. It ends up being that the next one is just as much my favorite, and I like it just as much. But if, if you are, were to survey, there are a number of pastors in this room this morning. If you survey them and other pastors you know, you'll find that many of them will admit that Romans chapter 8 is one of their favorite chapters of the whole Bible. Um, James Boyce, okay, as I was reading uh, the commentaries and studying to prepare this sermon, it almost seemed as if the different pastors and commentators were almost trying to one-up one another to see who could say the greatest thing about Romans chapter 8. I mean, it's really funny. Like one of them said, uh, uh, John Stott said, that Romans 8 is without doubt one of the best-known, best-loved chapters of the Bible. But not to be outdone, James Boyce said, Romans 8 is truly great, even superlatively great. And then another one said, if the Bible was a ring and the book of Romans its precious stone, chapter 8 would be the sparkling point of the jewel. And they just went on and on and on about how awesome Romans 8 is. Now, it really is great. It really is a great chapter. And uh, I'm sad that you guys are just stuck with me to preach it to you. But it really is, it really is a great chapter. And so let's see what's so great about it. Please follow along with me as I read the first four verses of Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For what God has done, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. And it's given to us in love for our good. And we're going to look at this passage with the following three headings, which are all questions. The first is, what, what is true for all Christians? That's the first question. What is true for all Christians? Or you might even say, what has God done for you if you're in Christ? So what has God done? The second is, how did God do it? And the third question, 
which you may not even know what the answer to this one is from the beginning is, why did God do it? Well, that's a good question. What did God do? How did God do it? And why did God do it? So first, what did God do? What's true of all Christians? Well, we see in verses 1 and 2 that there are two big things. Two big things that God has done for us if you're in Christ. And they both involve freedom. First, God has set us free from sin's penalty. Look with me at Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Set free from sin's penalty, no condemnation. And if you're like me, that word condemnation kind of jumps off the page at you because that's not a word that I use very often. So it just sticks out to me, but... Many of us know what it means that condemnation is a legal forensic term which includes both the sentence of guilty and the execution of the sentence. And this is a verse that I quoted to you, spoke over you as the assurance of pardon earlier in the service. It's, it's one of the best, if not the best, assurances of pardon in the whole Bible. It's a verse that many of you, if you were navigators in college, or if you know what a navigator is, you may have memorized this verse early on. It's a great verse, but because it's so familiar to us, I can be concerned for you and for me that we, we just skip over it. We read through it so quickly that we miss what the Apostle Paul is really saying here. He says that now for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. It means if you are truly a follower of Jesus then you are utterly and completely free from any sin, debt, or penalty. That God no longer has any charge against you. Now let that sink in. This truly is of inestimable worth. I mean, if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation for you now, nor will there ever be at any point in the future. That's what this verse means, that not only is there no condemnation for the sins we have committed, but we've moved on beyond condemnation for whatever we're going to do tomorrow, or the day after tomorrow, or the day after that. That what it means is that if you're in Christ, the threat of condemnation is removed forever if we're in Christ. It doesn't exist anymore for those who are truly Christians. That this verse speaks of our perfect and eternal security in Christ. And so many of us, we know exactly what verse I'm talking about whenever I say Romans 8.1. Or if we begin to quote it, you, you kind of know what it is and you can finish it. I, mean, I think this verse is clear enough. It's simple enough to understand in our minds. But the question is, do we actually live like this is true? I mean, we know, we know, that, we're not, we're, we know that this is what the Bible says. And we know that we're supposed to believe this is true, but when we evaluate our lives, how we actually live, do we actually live this way? You see, I'm fearful that many, if not most of us, actually really live as if we, we go in and out of being under condemnation, not no condemnation, now nor ever. And I think for many of us, for most of us even, maybe it works like this. That we, we, we come to church on Sunday morning. 
And it's a good day, and so there were minimal arguments and fights and things on the way here, and everybody was ready on time. We had the clothes laid out ahead of time. The kids liked what they had agreed already to wear, and so we're all here. We're, we're on time, and our, our hearts are actually engaged. Our hearts are engaged, and we, we, we sing the worship songs, and we're going through the liturgy. And, and they, both the songs and the liturgy happen to grip our hearts in a meaningful way that day at church. They grip our hearts. And so whenever, so we are excited and even moved to worship to, to freely and readily confess our sins to our holy and loving God and ask for the forgiveness that, that Jesus has already purchased for us. And we do that both corporately and silently. And then the, 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 the assurance of pardon is particularly powerful that day. And we hear that. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we think, yes, that is true. No longer under condemnation. I'm loved by God. I'm loved by God, not because of what I've done, but I am loved by God because of what Jesus has done. And then later that day, or the next week, we really blow it. I mean, we really blow it. We, however, in your mind that you define sinning in a big way, sinning that way again in a way that you, you thought for sure you're past it, never to go back there, but you go back there again. And as soon as you do that, you, you know Romans 8, 1 in your mind, but in your heart, in your experience, actually what you feel is, I think I've slipped right back under condemnation once again. So when we're doing well, we believe Romans 8.1. This is true. No condemnation. When we're not doing well. You know what? I'm not sure this is really true of me. And you see, friends, thinking this way, living this way, does not match up with the comprehensiveness and the intensity of Romans 8.1. I mean, look at it again. Look at it again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, if you're in Christ, this, this verse is really meant to be like a banner. It's meant to be like a banner that God hangs over you. I mean, you know, there are banners in this, in this room. If you look around at them, you know, the words on the banners, <clears throat> most of the time, they're not complete sentences. They're, they're just statements. Even sometimes, there's no verb even in, in the ban- on the banners. In the original Greek, Romans 8.1 doesn't have a verb. In the original Greek, what Romans 8, how it reads is, therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. It's meant to be this banner that hangs over us. That's an objective reality regardless of how we feel. So that we can preach the gospel to ourselves whenever we find ourselves slipping out from underneath this no condemnation into condemnation, we can know it doesn't matter how I feel. It doesn't matter how well I'm doing because the no condemnation status is not based on me or my performance. It's based on Jesus and his performance. You see, friends, the, the day you put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior, the Savior who lived, pled, died, rose from the grave for you, it's as if Jesus said to you, From this day forward, I will not condemn you. I was condemned in your place on the cross. 
you never have to fear me. You never have to fear condemnation from me. If you're in me, you are safe. So what has God, what has God done? What is true for all Christians? There is no condemnation. There is freedom from sin's penalty. But there's more. Look at verse 2. There's also freedom from sin's power. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, this is the very first mention of the Holy Spirit in Romans 8. I mean, it's verse 2. Do you know that there are only four mentions of the Holy Spirit from Romans 1 to Romans 7? Only four. Do you know how many times the Holy Spirit is mentioned in Romans chapter 8? About 20 times. You know what that means? It means the Holy Spirit is mentioned more times in Romans 8 than any other chapter in the New Testament. So we're going to become very familiar with the Holy Spirit as we move along throughout this summer. And as you read verse 2, you see that if you're truly a follower of Jesus, then the law of the Holy Spirit has come into your life to do what? To set you free from the law of sin and death. And this takes us right back to where we've been in Romans with our union with Christ. If you notice both in verse 1 and in verse 2, you have the phrase, in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. The union with Christ. You see, if you're truly a follower of Jesus, then your old self was crucified with Jesus. And the wonderful and beautiful mystery of this union with Christ is that when Jesus died, we died with him. That when he died for sin, we died to sins, penalty, no condemnation, and we died to sin's enslaving power that now we've been set free. So I want to remind you again of two verses that we've seen over and over again throughout this series, Romans 6, verses 6 and 7, where Paul writes, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Set free from sin's enslaving power. Now, we know that this doesn't mean that if you're in Christ, you are then sinlessly perfect moving forward. We know that. I mean, no one's talking about that. We know that from our own hearts. And if you were here last week, we know that from Paul's autobiographical personal testimony in Romans 7. However, what is true of you if you are in Christ is that through your faith in Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection, your union with him... Sin's enslaving, domineering, tyrannical authority over you has been broken and defeated so that we are now raised with Jesus to walk in newness of life. So what is true of all Christians? Some really incredible things. You've been set free from sin's penalty, no condemnation. You've been set free from sin's enslaving power, set free by the spirit of life. Now, the second question is, well, how did God do this? How did God do this? And even part of the answer is in that question that don't miss the fact that God had to do it. So look, look at verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So see this, these incredible things, freedom from sin's penalty, freedom from the enslaving power of the law, this is a gracious work of God. And you see, God had to do it Because we could not and we cannot do it ourselves. 
And it says that God did what the law was was weakened by the flesh could not do. And that, that doesn't mean that there's anything at all wrong with the law. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 7 that God's law is holy, righteous, and good. But there is a problem, and the problem is with us, with our flesh, with our sinful nature, that we can't perfectly keep God's law. Therefore, we learn in Romans 7, right, that God's law is like a mirror. God's law is like a mirror, that the more we study it and we learn it, it's a mirror that we look into, and it shows us the dirt on our faces of how we fail to perfectly keep and obey God's law. But the point here is that like a mirror, it can only show us the dirt on our faces that it can't clean the dirt off of our faces. It can only show us what's wrong. And it can tell us we need to go to to the one or to the thing that can clean us. And so God's law leads us to Jesus. You see, so God does this. God is the one who saves us. God is the one who frees us from sin's penalty, that frees us from sin's power. Well, how does he do that? Let's look on at Romans 8.3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son. Now, this verse, Romans 8.3, this is, there's a lot to understand in this verse, and it is powerfully precise. And so we're going to look at it kind of phrase by phrase. So first, God does this by sending his own Son. Now, most of you know that. Most of you know that, that God sent his own Son. Right? That's what Christmas is all about. But I don't want you to read by this too quickly. God sent His own Son for sinners like us. Do you hear the sacrificial love of our Heavenly Father's voice in that phrase? He sent His own Son. He didn't just send someone. He sent his own son. And that's something for you to preach to yourself the next time you find yourself doubting, questioning whether or not God really loves you. Whether God God really cares enough to, to hear your prayers. The next time you're sitting there praying and it seems like, you know, the heavens are made of brass and nothing is getting through. And you're not sure that God cares at all about you. He sent his own son. But there's more. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now that phrase, once again, is powerfully precise. Listen to what commentator Kent Hughes says about this phrase. Paul was very careful about his words here. He did not say Christ came in sinful flesh, because that would imply sin was in him, in Jesus. Nor did he say likeness of flesh, because that might imply Christ only seemed to be in the flesh and not really human. He said the likeness of sinful flesh, because Christ took on man's flesh, Jesus was fully human, without becoming a sinner. You see why that's so important? That Jesus... Jesus' humanity was both real and sinless, which allowed Jesus to live the perfectly sinless life that we've all failed to live. You see, that word likeness there in verse 3, it brings Jesus near to us. One of us, yet without sin. It brings him near enough to us to be our Savior. But then there's more. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh 
and for sin. And for sin. What a short little phrase. And for sin. You know that that, the Greek phrase translated and for sin is translated throughout the Bible as for a sin offering. You see, this is atonement language. That God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering for us. For sinners like us who need such an offering. See, listen to how the author of Hebrews puts this in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore he, that's Jesus, had to be made like his brothers, that's us, in every respect except without sin, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And then Pastor Richard Phillips explains it this way, Christ became man so that he might bear our names upon his shoulders. Remember, he came near to us, like us. This is why Jesus was born to the world, so that by his death, as both God and man, he might break the hold of death and set us free, while making propitiation to the holy wrath of God for our sins. So let's put this all together. Romans 8, 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh. Simply put, he conquered and defeated sin. See, Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, why not? Why is there no condemnation for you if you're in Christ Jesus? Romans 8, 3 says, because your sin has already been condemned. And it was condemned in Jesus on the cross and removed from you, from us, for forever. This is how he did it. So a great gospel summary verse is 2 Corinthians 5, 21. It says, For our sake he, that's God the Father, made him, that's Jesus, God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what's called the great exchange, that on the cross, for those who believe in Jesus, on the cross, our sins Go to Jesus. He takes our sin upon himself so that our sin can be condemned in the flesh. He takes it upon himself. And what does he do? He, in exchange, he imputes to us, he credits to us his righteousness, his perfect moral and spiritual resume that we all know that we do not have. No one thinks that. I've met so many people who think they're good. I've never met anyone who thinks they're perfect. But Jesus, by faith, by, through our union with him, he copies and pastes his perfect moral and spiritual resume to us, to our resume, to our account. So what does he do? He frees us from sin's penalty and sin's power. How does he do this? Well, God, in his sacrificial love, sends his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. So that sin can be condemned. Now, I go through all of that to ask you the questions. I'm very curious to see the wheels turn for you. Why did God do this? The Bible says that's what God does. What he did for you if you're in Christ. The Bible clearly says in verse 3, that's how he did it. So let me ask you this question. And a lot rides on this. 
Why did God do that for you if you're in Christ? Now, there are multiple answers. Multiple answers that are all good and biblical and important. But there's one that probably is not at the top of your list. And so I'll save that for last. One of the reasons why God did this for you is because he loves you. He loves you. And that's the one that probably most of us jump to. God loves you. That's why he did it. Not that you deserved it or not that you were lovable, but God loves you. John 3.16. God also did this for you for the praise of his own name, for his own glory. That's Ephesians 1, and some of us may have gone there. But there's another reason that is just as good, just as biblical, and just as important. Do you know why God did this for you? Do you know why God saved you if you're in Christ? He saved you to make you holy. He saved you to make you holy. Look at verse 4. Why did God do all of this? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, yes, we have... Jesus' righteousness imputed to us, but verse 4 does not say in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be, might be fulfilled for us. That's imputed righteousness. This says might be fulfilled in us. In us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, God saved you to make you holy. He didn't save you because you were holy, because you and I were not. But He saved you to make you holy. Listen to what... The theologian John Stott says, The holiness of the people of God is so important to God that He sent His Son to die for us and His Spirit to live in us in order to secure it. Holiness is the fruit of Trinitarian grace. Did you hear the Trinity throughout this passage? Holiness is the fruit of Trinitarian grace, of the Father sending His Son into the world and His Spirit into our hearts. And I know some of us are so afraid, we're so afraid of works righteousness that the idea of me saying even God saved you to make you holy makes you cringe a little bit. Now, you know me, you guys know I'm, I'm not legalistic. You guys know me, you guys know I'm not a Pharisee. Okay, but just to prove it, I'm going to quote somebody who you would not expect maybe them to say this, but Timothy Keller says that Everything Christ did for us was in order that we might live a holy life. See, now you believe me. Now you're like, okay, okay, all right, he did it. That's, 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 that's fair enough. That's probably true. Now, this week, preparing to preach this sermon, I knew, I knew I was going to come to this because this is what the text says, that God saved you to make you holy. Knowing this all week, I, I, I wrestled with, how, how do I say this in a way that's going to be helpful? Because I always want to say true things, but how do I say something true in a way that's actually going to be helpful? How do I say something true that's not going to leave people just frustrated or burdened or even cynical about, okay, you know, I'm, not, I'm never going back there again. They're talking about holiness. How, how, do, I, how do I say this? And what kept coming to my mind was a parable that I once heard. And I don't know who originally said this, but this is a parable. Um, we'll call it the duck parable. And maybe some of you heard it before. 
But the uh, duck parable goes something like this. There was this town where only ducks lived. And on Sunday, the, uh, the ducks would get up and they would waddle down Duck Main Street and they would, in their little duck families, and they would waddle into the duck church and they would waddle to their pew that you know, had their name on it and they would squat. They would squat in their duck pew and the duck choir would sing their songs and then the duck pastor would walk up and he would read from the duck Bible. And as he read from the duck Bible, that he would encourage them, ducks, God has given you wings. With these wings, you can fly. With these wings, you can rise up and soar like eagles. No walls can confine you. No fences can hold you. You have wings and you can fly like birds. And all the ducks shouted, amen. And then they waddle home. Now, why do they waddle home? Why do they waddle home? I mean, perhaps they waddle home because they don't believe the pastor. Perhaps. Perhaps they waddle home because one time they tried to fly, and it was different. It was different, and since everybody else wasn't flying, they decided it would be, it would be easier and safer and more comfortable to stop flying and go back to waddling. Or perhaps the reason why they waddled home is because even though they shouted amen, thanks be to God, the duck pastor's words from the duck Bible never moved from their, from their heads to their hearts. And so it never moved out from their hearts to their lives. So that's the question. I mean, it's clear enough that God saved us to make us holy. But many, so many of us, we look at our lives and we think, I don't see a lot of holiness here. I don't see a lot of change here. So how do we do that? How do we move it from our heads to our hearts and from our hearts out to our lives? I mean, it takes a lifetime to figure that out. Certainly not one sermon and not even a whole sermon series on the great chapter of Romans 8. But let me, let, me, let me end with this, this quote. It's a long quote uh, from Ray Ortland Jr. He says, God aims to make us not just forgiven people, but new people. He joins sanctification to justification. What generates real holiness is not fear of punishment. We don't have that. There's no condemnation, but fullness of heart. When you sin, when I sin, there's always a reason. We sin because we believe that it's simply the price we have to pay for a taste of happiness. But sin is deceiving us. It does not deliver on its promise. It leaves only the bitter aftertaste of death. God promises us life. The Spirit moves in our hearts to trust God enough to fight for life and happiness in all we desire, not in sin, but in the ways of God. The Spirit arouses our thirst for Jesus so that we come to Him and drink until rivers of living water flow from our inmost beings. The Spirit shows us how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God. He helps us to know this love that surpasses knowledge so that we are filled with all the fullness of God. And when we live in that holy atmosphere, sin is a lot less attractive. This is why the heart is vital in authentic Christianity. We must have the felt love of God in our hearts. 
If we do not, if we stop short of it and settle for cerebral faith only and intellectual faith only, we will not be able to overcome sin. We may conceal it. We can get very creative. We may even blind ourselves to it by redefining it. But we will be powerless to rise above its seductions because they are aimed at the heart where only the Holy Spirit can renew us. And so, friends, this passage reminds us, or maybe even tells some of us for the first time, that God did all of this to make us holy. See, friends, holiness is not a curse word. And holiness is not an enemy of God's grace. It's not how we earn God's grace, but it is the fruit of God's grace in our lives. And holiness is not impossible. You see, the the call to holiness for a Christian is not the call to sprout wings and begin to fly. The call to holiness for the true follower of Christ is to realize that God sent His Son and He sent His Spirit into your heart to give you wings. You see, the call to holiness is be who God has made you to be. Be who God has made you to be. Let's pray. Father, my prayer, Lord, is that we would see, we would see and we would believe what you have done for us. We would see how clearly and how powerfully and lovingly you did it for us, and we would see why you did it. Yeah, you did it because you love us. Yes, you did it for your glory, but you did it to make us holy. Let this truth Let this truth move from our heads to our hearts and out into our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.